We are talking today with John Elmer, a Canadian writer and photojournalist. He's lived in and reported extensively from the occupied Palestinian West Bank in Gaza. The 21st anniversary of the Second Intifada are defined by Israel meeting popular demonstrations with military force. The way that the Israelis attacked the Second Intifada really made it a military confrontation. There's no honor in marching into machine gun fire. Palestinians pretty quickly switched tactics. They had two major reactions to the Intifada. They withdrew from the Gaza Strip and from a couple isolated places in the West Bank and to build the wall. It was urban combat that will be studied for generations to come by militaries because of the way that the Palestinians used the terrain. They've locked Palestinians into open air prisons as a result of the Second Intifada's popular resistance. Were the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto Samud? Like, was that steadfastness to be digging a hole in the ground just to survive from your occupier? This the Palestine part. Palestine part. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and you can call me Mikey Intifada if you've had the morning off with Facebook and Instagram down. <laughs> oh, those internet Zionists are, 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 are probably just twiddling their thumbs trying to figure no, out what you... I imagine they're actually just pacing around their apartments being like, define Zionism to themselves. <laughs> I hear Twitter still up though, so they're they're probably all flooding there. Before we get into today's episode, like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. And if you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. We also have a lot of exciting stuff happening over on Patreon. So if you love the Palestine Pod and want to support this project, join our Patreon where you can get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes and additional one or two podcasts a week, including our latest creation that we call the Patreon Pod, which is a little more laid back. Some Palestine stuff, some pop culture, some politics. We kind of go over it all. And monthly Zoom happy hours with Michael and myself. So really exciting stuff. You can find us over at patreon.com slash palestinepod. All right, so let's get into today's episode. We are talking today with John Elmer, a Canadian writer and photojournalist specializing in the Middle East and Canadian foreign and military policy. He's lived in and reported extensively from the occupied Palestinian West Bank and Gaza, specifically based in occupied Jenin, Bethlehem, and Gaza. He has covered such topics as the Al-Aqsa Intifada, the so-called Israeli disengagement of Gaza, which was immediately followed by the imposition of a siege on Gaza, as well as factional strife in Gaza. His work appears in the Journal of Palestine Studies, Le Monde Diplomatique, and The Progressive. He's also co-host of an amazing podcast with Nora Barrows-Friedman, a dear friend of the Palestine Pod. I'm a huge fan of their podcast called The Brief. It focuses on the empire, its satellites, and its subcontractors through an anti-imperialist lens. John, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Thanks so much for having me. What an intro, huh? She's so good at that. Yeah, that's that sounded good, whoever that was. Mm-hmm. I just copy and pasted some stuff I found on the internet, so it's all good. (laughs) So, John, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but given the 21st anniversary of the beginning of the Second Intifada taking place last week on September 28th, let's start with that. Yeah, I mean, the Second Intifada began, as you say, 21 years ago when Israeli General Ariel Sharon marched on Haram al-Sharif, the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, backed by about a thousand security forces. Inside the mosque, people began to protest that, throwing shoes and whatnot, and the Israelis opened fire on the crowd, killed seven in the mosque compound, and essentially began an intifada. Within minutes of what was happening in Jerusalem, people were chanting, we want an intifada throughout the West Bank. There was demonstrations that went to the front pages of international newspapers almost immediately, and they were defined, in essence, by Israel meeting popular demonstrations with military force. They opened fire on the crowds and they made the situation in the Second Intifada very difficult for a popular uprising 
to manifest in the way that the first intifada had with with the strikes and a lot of nonviolent civil disobedience that happened in the first intifada. The way that the Israelis attacked the second intifada really made it a military confrontation right from the start. There's no honor in marching into machine gun fire, so Palestinians pretty quickly switched tactics. And the intifada raged, I guess, pretty much till 2004, I think. There's no real ending date of it, but through to the 2005 disengagement from Gaza. They had two major reactions to the intifada. They withdrew from the Gaza Strip and from a couple isolated places in the West Bank. Those were important Palestinian gains to get territorial space in Gaza, even though it was a ghetto, is a ghetto, very much a ghetto, able to have a piece of territory really for the first time. The way that the Israelis attacked the Intifada was to turn it military, and then of course, to build the wall was the response to the uprising and has created in the West Bank a series of tiny Gazas and really made popular protest and uprisings very difficult in this context that we face right now. Yeah, thank you for that amazing summary of what started the Second Intifada and sort of like the tactics that Palestinians had to resort to because of the approach of the occupation. A lot of the images that came out of the Second Intifada were were unforgettable and conveyed to the world the asymmetry that characterizes colonial violence and the violence of Israeli occupation. You wrote in an Al Jazeera article remembering the Second Intifada that the head of the Israeli military intelligence at the time, Amos Malka, said that the occupation army actually fired more than 1.3 million bullets in the occupied territories in the first month of the Second Intifada alone. Palestinians, by contrast, have no army. We also saw images of Palestinian youth throwing stones uh, who were met with Israeli snipers and tanks. We know that the numbers of Palestinians killed greatly outnumbered the numbers of Israelis killed. Can you speak a little bit more about this asymmetry and what it meant to the tactics and strategy and outcome for Palestinians as they were resisting colonial violence? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, suicide bombings became sort of synonymous with the Intifada, but it's important to understand that 275 Palestinian civilians were killed in the first year that you cited 1.3 million bullets fired. That was an accounting that military intelligence did to try to find out, you know, he talks in that in that article about going to the meeting and trying to find out from each of his brigade commanders in each area how many bullets they were firing to try to get an accounting on what was going on, but 275 to five civilians, 19 security forces in the first year. That was before uh, the tactics switched. And that number of people killed represents people killed, as I said, in, in popular demonstrations that were met by gunfire. So Palestinians, the Second Intifada was turned into an armed struggle, an urban warfare by Israeli tactics. But the Palestinian uh, participation in the uprising was still, you know, near total. Support for resistance, support for prisoners in Palestine is nearly universal. It's important to note that nobody critiques the tactics that the guerrillas are forced into taking. For one thing, because everybody sees what's going on. It's everybody's families that are at these demonstrations getting shot at. So the tactics for the Palestinians were forced into urban guerrilla warfare. And that's what happened in cities like Ramallah and in uh, Nablus and Janine, places in the southern Gaza Strip like Rafa. It was urban combat and in some ways urban combat that will be studied for generations to come by militaries because of the way that the Palestinians used the terrain in the refugee camps in order to secure positions, in order to defend territory. I'm sure we'll get into Janine, but one of the reasons that the Battle of Janine happened was because the Israelis were unable to enter the camp. The small alleyways, you know, that are created because these are refugee camps. And these were refugee camps that were created in 1948 when Palestinians were driven from their homes. In Janine, it's mostly people from Haifa. And they went in and they pitched tents. And they pitched tents that went up and shared one tent peg. So tent, 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 sharing a middle tent peg. And whatever we are now, 70 years later, they're in the exact same pieces of property now two and three generations deeper, but the piece of plot of land that they are living on is not bigger than the tent property that they started. What ended up happening was 
you know, when it rained or whatever, after in the first winter, when they were refugees, they put uh, a floor under their tent, you know, and then the next winter, they put some cinder blocks up. And then the winter after that, they put some corrugated metal roofing on top of their houses. And that's where they are 70 years later. And Palestinians were able to use that landscape, that terrain, knowing it so well, you know, in part, unfortunately, knowing it so well, because they're trapped inside these refugee camps, unable to really develop outside of them. But the tactics that the Palestinians developed were fit into that, into that context. The old city of Nablus, the Casbah, the, the Warrens, the alleys around there. The Israelis had a very difficult time penetrating those areas. And it led to, you know, also stuff that will be studied in military science for generations to come, the way the Israelis use the territory to fight against Palestinians. For example, traveling through walls because Israeli soldiers were too scared to go outside, traverse the alleys in Nablus or Janine. They would literally blow holes through the houses and go house to house, searching house to house by blowing through someone's living room wall. And so that's, you know, that's the kind of tactics that were adopted. And Palestinians fought the Intifada really with Israel to a standstill. Ultimately, Israel effectively withdrew from the cities in 2002 that they had occupied, began building, you know, the, I don't know what it's at now, 800 and something kilometer wall. It's not one continuous wall. It's a number of walls, fences, and it, and it in completely encircles Palestinian areas. Their justification for that was that Palestinian bombers were leaving from the refugee camps and attacking Israeli military and civilian uh, urban installations inside Israel, something that hadn't happened before. Israelis are in the military, they have a conscription army, so they fought in the 67 war, the uh, Yom Kippur war, but the idea of having uh, the war itself with Palestinians that were supposed to be gone, right? Like Tel Aviv is supposed to be cleansed of Palestinians. And then one Tuesday morning, someone, a Palestinian is blowing up in their cafes and bringing the, the fight to their cities. And Israel couldn't really tolerate that and essentially was forced to come up with this disengagement plan. You know, after the first intifada, Israel created the Oslo peace process as a way to try to undermine popular resistance. After the second intifada, they created the wall apparatus, which was basically their attempt to squash the two-state solution. You know, is Ariel Sharon's top aide, Dove Weisglass, called it the formaldehyde solution. You take the peace process and you put it in formaldehyde by creating ghettos, walls all around Palestinian areas. You don't allow them to travel from one area to another. You have multiple pass systems. And you continue to talk about, you know, the quote unquote peace process. Nothing changes because Palestinians are trapped inside walls. And on the other side of the wall, Israelis can build their settlements right up to the maximalist real estate expansion possible. And essentially, that's what we're in right now is this kind of like, stalemate that Israel doesn't know how to break the Palestinian resistance and the Palestinian resistance, I mean, does know how to break out of the ghettos as we've seen in Gaza, but it's very, very difficult. I, I think it's very important for listeners to understand just how strategically significant the wall. I mean, I think you can probably imagine if you think it through that if you put a concrete wall around someone's village and don't let the village grow, cut people off from their fields, make it almost impossible to travel from one area to another, or just so cumbersome that you wouldn't bother doing it. For example, you wouldn't travel to go to university in Ramallah if you lived in Janine, because the amount of effort that it would take just to get that, you know, whatever it is, 70 kilometers, it's not very far. But with the walls, the checkpoints, They've basically just locked Palestinians into open-air prisons as a result of the Second Intifada's popular resistance. You said they called it the formaldehyde solution? Yeah, the formaldehyde even, solution. Even in their metaphors, they're killing things. Yeah. Yeah, it's the death of the peace process. Essentially, Weisglass said, like, with the formaldehyde solution, 
what what it was was after September 11th, they got Bush to sign off on essentially overturning whatever it was, 50 years of U.S. ostensible U.S. policy to not back the settlements, to, to you know to talk about there being some sort of Palestinian statehood. But what the Weisglass says, if we withdraw from Gaza, where there was something like 5,000 Israeli settlers and a million and a half Palestinians. And the settlers controlled like 40% of the territory with those numbers that they could say to these sort of round tables that happen at these international forums, like we're doing something, you know, we're doing, we're, we're withdrawing. We're, you know, these are good faith withdrawals. We'll negotiate final status stuff later. But as they're saying this, you can literally hear the bulldozer expanding the settlement. You can see the workers like literally putting up the wall that's going to make it impossible for the people in that village to access. So yeah, it's formaldehyde. The thing is still there. Everything that you want to talk about is still there, but it's like put into this jar under Israeli auspices, right? Like it's under Israeli territorial. Israel gets to go on building its country while Palestinians have to figure out every five years how to deal with the new catastrophe in their way of life. So everybody fought in the Intifada because it wasn't a popular uprising in the sense of demonstrations, but it was a popular uprising in the sense of everybody supported it. But Palestinian life was destroyed. And there's no, you know, for all the heroic resistance, it's 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 important for us to state that that resistance came at a very, very high price. People's entire like ways of life were destroyed. There was hundreds and hundreds of days of curfew in those four years. Kids weren't going to school under curfew. So kids lose whole, you know, chunks of, of, of education, you know, development, that kind like just basic development. And while they're not in school, they're learning from their brothers and from their friends, you know, about the necessity to struggle. They're constantly in this pressure cooker and they're born and raised in that pressure cooker. And they paid a really serious price. Everybody did. The kids did who lost their older brothers, lost their, their capacity for education in those years. You know, just the destruction alone, like the Janine camp was turned into a moonscape. The Israelis just bulldozed the entire thing. These people have to figure out how to live like that, right? So 2002, they get everything destroyed. You know, it takes a few years to regroup. And while Palestinians are regrouping and trying to figure out, uh, you know, the next step, Israel's just carrying on. The settlements are expanding at the same rates. They're expanding onto territory that's supposedly being negotiated for. And yeah, Dove Weisglass holds up the jar with the peace process in it and says, this is the formaldehyde solution. You can see everything in it, but it, essentially what he says is that the disengagement took the final status issues essentially off the table. Because when you're walled into ghettos, Palestinian refugees aren't going to all come clamoring back to live inside the Janine ghetto. So there you put the refugees off the table. Jerusalem's completely encircled by a wall. So the, the Jerusalem that Israel is having Palestinians negotiate over is actually Abu Dis, which is its own village outside of Jerusalem. And these, this is the formaldehydes. It, it puts these final status issues. The issues have been well known since day one, and the way to redress them has been known since day one. But if you trap people in a state of constant siege, like literal military siege, yeah, the, the ability for that country to develop is, is destroyed. I mean, it's genocidal in that sense, because it's an incremental genocide. And when all's said and done, culture persists uh, you know, and is resilient in all these terms that we use, like samud, you know, it's, yeah. it's resilient. But it's a lot to ask people. It's a lot to ask people to be resilient like that when Israel's default is to just destroy. I remember when Israel withdrew its settlers from Gaza. I was a freshman in college, I think. And I wrote a paper about it because at the time it was being touted by Israel as, oh, look at us. 
We are, you know, making these efforts for peace. We are withdrawing our settlers from Gaza. We're turning a new leaf. You know, it was being pushed as this sort of PR statement by Israel that they were serious about a, a peace process and a solution. What a lot of people don't know is that a lot of those settlers were relocated to the West Bank and settlements. Yeah. And so it's interesting because not only did the disengagement of the Israeli settlers from Gaza then allow Israel to turn Gaza into that ghetto that it would no longer need to have, you know, the army enter on the ground. That's at the point at which they started to bomb Gaza from above, right? So they could do everything that they needed with aerial bombardments, drones, missiles, everything from a control room. They didn't have to go in to Gaza. By and large, the policy towards Gaza had changed. We're going to attack you from above instead of be amongst you. While what they really care about and what they really want, the West Bank territory, continued to see an increase in settlers, including those who were previously in Gaza. So that's one thing. The other thing that I think, uh, you know, he, listening to you talk, there's so many like things that I want to respond to because you've touched on like 85 subjects in, in, in one response. But I think it's important for us to set the record straight on the suicide bombing that took place during the Second Intifada. And th- what I really like is you address this in, in your article, Remembering the Second Intifada as well. So you speak about how suicide bombing, although it be- came to eventually define Palestinian armed struggle in that moment, it's important to keep in mind that it did not start Initially, actually, it only started more than a year into the uprising. You also cite to the findings of a political scientist at the University of Chicago's Project on Security and Terrorism, Robert Pape, who has studied suicide terrorism since 1980. And he basically says that suicide attacks are always one of last resort. What you see is that it almost always comes later after the ordinary violence when you have the ordinary violence that doesn't roll back the occupation. He also says that religion itself has very little to do with suicide bombing and that over 95% of suicide attacks around the world since 1980 are in direct response to a foreign occupation. So I think it's really important for us to keep in mind the context, right, for the types of resistance that Palestinians have engaged in over the years. For over 70 years, Palestinians have been fighting their forced expulsion from their land. That is the issue at hand here. And they have been doing so using all the methods of resistance available to them. Everything from protests to strikes, you know, to to, to labor unions engaging in strikes, to armed resistance, to student organizing, grassroots movements, the political process, negotiations, diplomacy, you name it, they've done it. Now, of course, BDS, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, which was inspired by a South African boycott, which led to the end of apartheid, absolutely everything. Palestinians have a right to engage in that resistance because they are fighting a foreign occupation. They are fighting a colonial power, which is in the process of exterminating them and has been for over 70 years now. And throughout this entire process, We are told at every step of the way that the type of resistance that we're engaging in is not appropriate. So if we are in these negotiations and we show up to the meetings with, you know, the president of the United States and the Israeli leaders, we are told we have to wait. We are told, no, you you have to agree to the preconditions and the preconditions are actually you conceding all the points that you actually have. All of your grievances must be left at the door before you walk in. So it's like, what is there left to negotiate? If we engage in armed resistance, we're told it's not appropriate. If, if, you know, whatever it is that we do, we are told that we are to blame for our condition because the means that we have chosen to try to simply survive on our land, not be expelled from it and live decent lives as human beings are wrong. So, It's really important for us to keep that in mind. I think there's obviously been this attempt to equate suicide bombing to, you know, some sort of 
irrational terrorism that that simply rises because Palestinians don't love their children, right? That's that's the famous line, is that if they have they only loved their children as much as they hate Israelis, well, then we'd have peace. You said that, that political scientists said that suicide bombing comes as a last resort. Not for me. It's always plan number A. You know what I mean? And then you got to have a, a pretty bombing jokes. <laughs> you got to have a, a you got to go suicide bombing plan A and at least like a pretty good plan B. Yeah. So I think, look, I mean, to play on that, it's it's true. Suicide bombings. So people think of the is this sort of this desperation thing. And they always try to play it off in the media as being, you know, sort of people like that had sort of lost their minds. They were so desperate, they were willing to do anything. And that's not true. It's a military operation and they didn't force people to volunteer. They were considered essentially commando operations. And it was the opposite of somebody that was incapable. It was somebody who was highly capable because the ability to navigate from the place where you carry a bomb, where it's assembled in the Janine refugee camp, the the road, the commute, if you will, to Israel is a dangerous trip. And if the attack doesn't take place, the revenge operation will. So it, if you if as Janine sent a bomber and the bomber was caught, they still attacked the Janine camp. So they weren't sending hapless people. Uh, people need to sort of understand that it's a military tactic that comes out of a situation where your armed struggle capacity is a death wish anyway. You're talking about fighting with an AK-47 against a mechanized armored unit with helicopter gunships, you're talking about assassination campaigns that went in just Janine alone, went scores deep. Like can imagine going 40, 50 people deep, assassinating the leadership, uh, the political operatives of a movement. It was full scale war. You would be driving with your mother to a store. And if Israel decided that that car had, was a militant, they would put a missile through the car and the whole family. It's not like it's people deciding, you know, I'm going to get up and do this uh, operation when I have dozens of other options uh, available to me. And it's important to note also that Palestinians stopped suicide bombings when it wasn't the full scale armed conflict of the Intifada. By 2004, the suicide bombings had stopped. The suicide bombing stopped in in for Hezbollah too in Lebanon. It was a tactic that they used for a period of time because of necessity, because of the landscape, and it might not be palatable to everybody to think it through in those terms. But as a military, as a soldier going off to war, there's an expectation uh, of re- uh, you know reckoning with your mortality that for sure a suicide bomber has a higher level of, there's no question, but it's, you know, you're talking about effectiveness of a tactic, you know, like that quote from Robert Pape that you have, that it, that is reflective of that article is a decade old and suicide bombing has become uh, particularly religious and also particularly common. Like the Iraq paradigm, of course, was just like, you know, the, the Palestinian suicide bombings all became, all came before the occupation of Iraq, which just sort of turned suicide bombing into an everyday thing. Palestinians weren't particularly targeting civilians is another point of suicide attacks. In Janine, there's a, when an attack was being planned, there was a a destination for the bomber, usually a military target, you know, like lots of times they'll, this is one thing I learned in Palestine is like, during the Intifada, we would hear uh, Israeli bus blows up like and they would be like oh bus number 12 blew up and you'd be like oh I ride a bus number 12 in Toronto it must be <laughs> just like me but it's not in the West Bank when you're traveling in throughout the West Bank the buses are full of soldiers almost exclusively soldiers traveling from home to their bases to report sometimes we'd hear attacks like in a pool hall and you'd be like I play pool but it's a military pool hall right because Almost everybody between 18 and 21 is conscripted into the military. But the the attacks weren't this sort of like spasm of desperation. 
And they weren't just like lashing out to kill as many civilians as possible. In fact, if you look at the 2014 war, Hamas had the capacity to exit the Gaza Strip and attack Israeli civilian installations, settlements beside the Gaza Strip. They broke out of the Gaza Strip four times during that war. And one time they were out for more than an hour and they didn't go to civilian targets. The goal was not civilian targets. It was times in the just sort of brutal tit for tat that happens once the war has escalated. There was for sure vengeance operations, but mostly when Palestinians hit targets that you kind of went like, "Mm, you know, you'd rather they didn't hit that target. It's they have the same explanation as the Israelis. That wasn't the target. Something went wrong We're in this situation where they're in downtown Tel Aviv, you know, and every, anyone that looks like an Arab is being, you know, scrutinized at that time. Sometimes the operations don't go as planned. Can you imagine if they were like, ah, we thought Hamas was in there? Yeah. Well, that the, the, when I arrived in Janine, I arrived in Janine as I was traveling, it took all day to get to Janine the first time. And I arrived when, just as, when we were in the service on the way there, we heard that there was a bombing in Haifa. And it was, uh, uh, th- this was my first like lived experience with the, you know, the cause and effect of how this works. And it was a woman, it was a 30 year old, uh, essentially secular, or like at least not uh, stoutly religious, woman lawyer from Janine, who was not young and desperate and carried out an attack in Haifa. And it just broke all of the kind of like stereotypes of who this is supposed to be. She wasn't a member of Islamic Jihad for her whole life. She carried out an operation for Islamic Jihad because Islamic Jihad has the capacity to carry out that military work. It's not, it's not like Islamic Jihad is driving through the refugee camp saying like, Anyone want to sign up for like these people have mothers too. No kid signs up to carry out this operation. And his mom goes like, yeah, go for it. Maybe after the fact, you know, she might after the fact back her son's thing, but nobody's saying, you know, like uh, these operations are not like Islamic Jihad going through the camp saying like, who wants, who wants to take part? It's much more, uh, it needs to be understood as a military tactic and a, a desperate one but a pretty effective one and one that Palestinians didn't abuse. You know, Hezbollah says the same thing, like we're willing to retreat. You know, we're willing to not carry out a suicide attack in order to protect the life of our people, right? We're willing, Hezbollah is willing to withdraw from a hillside. They're not sending waves of suicide bombers that they don't care about. It's the opposite. They're so deeply embedded in their communities that people are volunteering to participate in a popular struggle. Meanwhile, the United States and Israel is actively recruiting people to come into its army so that it can sacrifice them at will, right? They churn them out like sausage, starting from the age of 12, recruiting them with video games, and then feed them into that ROTC system all the way up into, you know, the Marines or whatever, where they just step on a landmine or get shot by friendly fire. Yeah, I mean, the Israelis are in schools a lot earlier than that. They're in the kindergartens and they do these kind of like heroic things. And because the reenactments, this is what my Israeli friends have told me. Yeah. Yeah. This, I mean, it's, it's stuff that's like, I I don't know. I, I would encourage you to look through American history and, and try to find an example of a, you know, of a holiday or a memorial or something that isn't linked to military struggle or some kind of military uh, moment. So the Palestinians celebrate their warriors is certainly, <laughs> they're not alone in that. We give certain people the right to celebrate their fighters, right? And Palestinians don't have that right. Bingo. Yeah. And to that to that end, you're based in Canada, correct? Yes, I'm in. The IDF, the IDF is recruiting lone soldiers in Canada, and there's a movement all across Canada to get them to stop because it's actually illegal for them to do so. Yeah, the largest book chain, the the largest book chain that pushed out all the independent bookstores in Canada, Chapters Indigo, supports them, supports the lone soldiers and sends them and says, like, if you come over here to Israel, because every right is every, every Jew worldwide has effective de facto citizenship. So they recruit these soldiers 
who are sort of disconnected from the Jewish milieu, and they they sell it as a like they sell it on religious grounds, right? This is the thing, like they're recruiting on religious military grounds, and then we're all shocked at the Palestinians if they ever do something like that. But they don't, right? Palestinians don't recruit people to come to Palestine to fight. They're talking no. about kids in Janine. The kids who fought and died in the Battle of Janine were born in Janine. 19 to 23 years before they died in that battle. They're not recruiting people from all over the world. This is people, look, Janine was a hornet's nest of resistance. Janine sent 28 bombers in an 18 month window into Israel. Israel was freaking out about it, not because it was desperate or good, you know, telegenic, uh, whatever Netanyahu said, telegenic dead bodies or whatever, right? Like the, they, the Israelis, were following this stuff all along and reacting to it. It wasn't just something that was like thrown against the wall to see if it would stick. It was part of a concerted military campaign that the Palestinians waged fairly successfully. If you look at it on a, on a tactical level, like strategically, I don't know how you say you could be victorious when the, when your oppressor just like literally builds a prison for you to be inside and you can't go out all day long, but it's a tribute to the resistance that Israel feels like it needs to do that, that it needs to be that it needs to ghettoize the indigenous population in order to push through its project. And to go back to Sharon, when you were talking about the disengagement, he gave a speech, Sharon did, before the disengagement. And he told Israelis, we have a dream. We had a dream, but the dream could not be implemented, right? The Zionist dream was an overwhelmingly, you know, a homogenous Jewish state uh, in a territory that was completely held by the Zionists. and. That was the dream, all of Palestine, river to the sea, right? And beyond. Um, and Sharon said, and beyond, right? And Sharon said, the dream could not be implemented. We couldn't push out the million and a half of people that live in the Gaza Strip for the 5,000 settlers. That dream could not be implemented. So what they are implementing is like a version of that dream where they just like literally warehouse the people that are interfering with that dream and hope that they, in the 20 years that Palestinians in the West Bank figure out how they're going to fight back inside these walls, when Israel doesn't even have to come inside the walls, you know, Israel builds and, and develops its state and goes to international fora and attacks BDS and pays soldiers to fill your comment section up on your Twitter or whatever ridiculous stuff. Well, Palestinians are trying to fight a you know, a, a, an existential battle to try to just exist in this continually shrinking piece of territory. And that's what's new from the Intifada. The wall is what comes out of the Intifada. And yeah. how, how the West Bank deals with the wall, you know, like the walled off the Gaza Strip after the first Intifada, like 91, like in the later, latter years of the Intifada, 91, 92. And so it took Palestinians in Gaza 10 years to develop the rocket capacity, 20 years to develop a like significant rocket program. But the Gaza Strip has a lot of, like for military purposes, has a lot of things that the West Bank doesn't have, like the inability for Israel to penetrate in Gaza is like, like if you think about the Gilad Shalit, the uh, Israeli tank mm -hmm. gunner that was taken captive, like he was in Gaza for years and Israel couldn't do anything about it. And that, that is something. It is something. You know, on this, when the prison break happened a few weeks ago, you know, Israel couldn't go into the Janine camp. And if you live in the Janine camp, that matters. The ability for the military to operate in your village and kill your people is significant. And so there's a certain like tribute to the resistance of the ghettoization, but it's just a, a further, uh, you know, compounding of the tragedy. Yeah, totally. Can you speak to the strategic defense developments in and under Gaza that make a ground invasion from the occupation very sketchy, to say the least? Yeah, I mean, tunnels. The In the Gaza Strip, they develop tunnels and they've been working on it for... I guess, 
I guess, what are we, 2021? <laughs> I guess they've been working on it for 35 years, essentially, yeah. developing this network, but particularly after 2005, when the Israelis left and were unable to come in anymore to do routine crackdowns that make it impossible to really develop. So they developed this underground, the Israelis call it the, the metro or the subway. It's an underground system of tunnels that connects their bases with, gives the fighters the ability to move around underground. And also the rocket technology transfer between Iran, Hezbollah, and the Qassam brigades and uh, Sarai al-Quds, the Islamic Jihad armed wing, has developed a rocketry program that is interconnected with the tunnel network so that they can fire multiple rockets and then lower the rocket launcher into the ground and protect it, reload it without having to come above ground. And these are the things is that in Gaza, in, in Janine, if you're a resistance fighter, you have to know how to live permanently underground, metaphorically or now literally. So those guys in Janine that were the fighters in the Janine camp in 2002, they didn't go home to their families at night. Visiting their mother was a, was a covert operation. So the tunnels, because they'll hunt you from the sky, they'll kill you with a helicopter, kill you with a drone that you barely can see. So it's a permanent state of feeling like you're about to die. So the Tunnel network has given the Palestinians the ability to essentially move military logistics underground and they can transport weaponry. They don't have to come above ground and drive a truckload of rockets, you know, which would just get hit. And so they've really built a defensive capability inside the Gaza Strip that's virtually, I would argue, has virtually made it impossible for the Israelis to enter. And it's a tunnel network that was was really seen in 2006 in the July War, uh, the Israel-Hezbollah War in 2006, when the Israelis came up into Lebanon and Hezbollah came up like through tunnels into houses that the Israelis thought that they were. What the Israelis do is they'll go into a village and they'll take a house and they'll put everybody into the kitchen and yeah. then they'll use the house as a base. And then that's, it's, it's effective in a lot of ways. One, because it gives you a forward operating base inside the town, but that's what would happen in Janine. They would come in, take over a house. And then it takes like a few hours to get like word about how to operate around the fact that your neighbor is now a military base and they're shooting at you from uh, those bases. And in the 2006 war, the Israelis were using this tactic that they got very comfortable with in the West Bank in 2002 and 2003. And they did it in South Lebanon. They did it in Bintish Bale. And the tunnel came up inside the house that the soldiers were in. Oh, and so this yikes. thing that for years that they'd used as this safe, like once they're in this house, they're safe. And fuck, they literally came up from the basement. And there's like a gunfight inside the house of, you know, like tunnels change the game. The tunnels uh, are a very, very effective urban warfare implement, for sure. No question. And I don't know if you know this, but there's actually a parallel in Jewish history where the Warsaw Ghetto had an underground Absolutely. tunnel, an underground network of tunnels. Let me read you a couple quotes. The entire population, young and old, were busy creating hiding places, particularly underground. And hundreds of bunkers were dug in the central ghetto, fitted with bunks, supplied with food and medicine. Some of the hiding places were even connected to an electricity system and the municipal sewage to enable their use over long periods of time. Quote, almost every Jew in the area found an address for himself and his dear ones in one of the underground shelters. It is no exaggeration to state that the network of cells and tunnels resembled a subterranean Jewish city. Yeah. I mean, that that's the thing is that the, the resistance in the Warsaw ghetto is, is something that like 
people in Janine know about the Warsaw Ghetto. Like that resistance rings out in history. The ingenuity that people, like I said before, you know, it's like that, you know, were the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto Samud? Like was that steadfastness to be digging a hole in the ground just to survive from your occupier? Like it is, but it's also just a brutal tragedy that forces people to be that in like inventive. And then when that does happen, it's remarkable to see. And a lot of people talk to me about like when I came home or like whatever, like, you know, you should be in PTSD, you know, therapy or whatever. The, the language doesn't understand, doesn't take into consideration just like how beautiful it is to see, you know, like when people come together, you know, when, when, when everybody's united towards, you know, the defense of their village, it's deep, deep tragedy, but it's also beautiful and history watches it. The whole world watches Palestinians and they think that they're heroes, you know, full stop. You know, that the Warsaw Ghetto is, you know, a tribute to Jewish resistance. And the the Gaza Strip is something people will talk about for hundreds of years, the way they've built the tunnels and, and made it possible for everybody to, yeah, to feel like you have options like your life isn't being completely dictated to you it's not nothing like the kids in janine will go out and throw stones at a tank mm-hmm. and people say well what what are you going to hurt the tank with a stone or that's not the point that's not the point yeah that agency that participation you know the the village you know a kid in the village throwing a stone at the person who killed his brother or destroyed his house um, it's it's very important. Who expelled it, his grandparents from ex- their homes during the next the I mean, this is intergenerational. Yeah. It's the reason why the, they live there. Exactly. The people from Janine are from Haifa. They're sea people. They're fishermen. And they're living in the interior mountains in a refugee camp. But like the name Janine will ring out through history. If you supported the resistance of the Warsaw Ghetto, but you think the people in Janine are terrorists, you are inconsistent, right? You are factually and historically inconsistent because At the Zionists Zionist actually studied the Warsaw Ghetto from a military perspective so that they could replicate it on Gaza. Yeah, and I mean, the, the state of Israel came into being in large measure because of its right-wing militias, right? And the, the first thing that the proper liberal Israeli state did was, you know, the IDF's first operations were against its militant wings, but it was their militant wings that led to the creation of the state. The, the, the British decided to leave, I mean, in part because of uh, Palestinian, but the like Arab revolt of the thirties was Palestinians fighting back. But then in the forties after in the like beginning of the decolonial era, the British couldn't hold Palestine because they were being attacked by their like supposed allies in the militant rings. So I think the idea of sort of trying to smear armed resistance as always wrong, is it just doesn't go very far. I don't think it's worth a ton of our time because it's just absurd, right? Like every American holiday is a military holiday. You know, the ads on for the Marine Corps on American TV would make uh, you know, Alexa TV blush. It's it's not, <laughs> it's it's only if you believe in the othering of Palestinians that you think that what they're doing is anything different. But nobody in the world, except for like, where are we, France, United States? Can't, like these are the con- the only countries that believe that. Like there's 175 other countries in the world that think Palestinians are heroes. Bingo. So we, we also, get this too- is yeah, this is an essential point. It's like from our frame of reference, we are in these countries where unfortunately there's a lot of work to be done on the discourse, also on the policy, especially if you're in the U.S. because we are the number one financial contributor. We support Israel diplomatically on the world stage. We veto resolutions that would seek to condemn Israel for its violations of international law before the Security Council. We have a lot of work to do in the United States, but sometimes we forget that the majority of the world sees the situation for what it is, knows that Palestinians are trying to liberate themselves. They're in a rights-based struggle 
to have rights on their land that they are being expelled from, that they're being ethnically cleansed from for over seven decades now. And that they are one of the last examples of people fighting a colonial power. And yet Israel continues to be a colonial power in 2021. And this is what the Palestinian struggle is about. When you were mentioning how one of the suicide bombers was a Palestinian female lawyer and how she sort of defied all of the stereotypes in her profile, it reminded me a lot of the resistance to French colonialism that came out of Algeria. Same sort of thing. Women were heavily involved in the resistance efforts. And again, they were in a rights-based struggle to remove from their land this colonial power that had been oppressing them for over 100 years. So this is not unusual if you understand why people are fighting, if you understand what's at stake. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that's, uh, I mean, that the Algerian resistance rings out in Palestine. These movements are connected and, uh, you know, are, are intertwined. And yeah, I mean, I think that that's the that that's the history that the Palestinians have been for multiple generations fighting back against liquidation, right? Against destruction. And and even if, you know, somebody might look at May in Gaza and say, you know, like hundreds of Palestinian civilians killed and, you know, what's the cost in Israel or whatever, right? Like the 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 ability for people to fight back while being massacred is something that the world sees. And the fact that Gaza was able to fire rockets until, you know, the end, they don't, get the terms of the ceasefires dictated to them. That's not nothing, you know, like Israel sued for peace in South Lebanon in the July war. Hezbollah, you know, dictated the conditions of that uh, ceasefire. The same with the ceasefire in Gaza in May. There was no resolution to that ceasefire because Palestinians uh, are, are well, Hamas is unwilling. There's a collaborator element within the Palestinian uh, milieu, of course, like like Abbas would famously ride into uh, Gaza on the back of an Israeli tank, right? Like that's sort of the fatal. I mean, line. he like, literally was meeting with Israeli officials, I think, yesterday or today. Yeah, yeah. So after but, that very threatening sort of uh, ultimatum that he gave before the General Assembly, where he said, "We give you one year to withdraw," he was out he there meeting. Do that. He does that speech every year. They keep <laughs> promising they're going to disband the Palestinian Authority, and all of us keep watching, like. Do it <laughs> as a comic uh, when you write good material. You know what I mean. You yeah, you want to keep, wanna using, keep it. using it. Yeah, yeah. you <laughs> hope that people weren't at the event, right? Hundred <laughs> percent. It's a new crowd every new year, crowd. almost. <laughs> if you could share with us just some of your experiences, like actually on the ground in Palestine, some of the things that you remember seeing. One of the anecdotes that I really enjoyed hearing about on the episode of the brief about the Great Escape was about how. Zachariah Zubaydi, one of the prisoners who liberated himself from the Gilboa prison, actually used to spend time in Jenin in the daytime on street corners settling disputes. He was a leader in the community. And then he would go into hiding at night because the occupation was looking for him and trying to kill him. But he managed to lead this life as a community leader and somebody that people respected and looked up to, and at the same time was was a leader in the resistance. And of course, we all know his past uh, with the Freedom Theater and really being involved in, you know, art and, and activism through art as well. So this is a really complex person. So maybe if you can give us some of your anecdotes about your time in in Palestine and Janine, and if you have something you'd like to add about Zachary Zubaydi, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So in Janine, essentially, what was happening was attacks were happening inside Israel that they were linking back to the Janine camp. And then Israel was coming into the camp and trying to arrest or kill those people, mostly kill them with death squads. And so every day in early in the morning, like this would be a normal day in Janine, you'd wake up to the sound of tanks at like, you know, just after morning prayer, just after like the sun starts to come up school would be canceled. They would announce it on a loudspeaker that it was curfew, or it would be curfew until they announced on the loudspeaker that it was not curfew. And so the kids would start the day often, you know, on their way to school. And they find out that there's a, a military operation happening someplace in the city and it's a curfew. And so school's closed. And so those kids would stay out on the streets and the tanks would come in and try to hold a particular house or whatever so that they could use it as a base to move from. The kids would 
would fight the tanks all day long with stones. And, you know, the tanks would try to essentially provide a, a perimeter for where the area where they were trying to carry out these arrests or these hunting missions where they were looking for guys like Zachary Zubedi. They were looking for the heroes of the Battle of Janine in 2002. They were looking for the planners of the bombings that were inside Israel. And it was a constant thing. So they would come in, they would bulldoze a house. They would bulldoze the guy's mom's house. They would bulldoze his, you know, what his sister's house. They would just basically harass the family by destroying their houses. But at each point where they're doing this, it becomes a, a site of resistance. They don't just bulldoze a house and people watch. They bulldoze the house and people throw stuff at them from every different angle. They'll throw paint, fill up uh, juice jars. They, they fill up juice jars with like uh, concrete powder, um, like the limestone powder, and put water in it and shake it up. And it makes essentially like a paint. And they throw it off the tank and it splatters and leaves a big mark. And the Israelis respond by often shooting these kids. And because the ambulances can't access the area where it is, basically the people that are in there, journalists, there was another Palestinian journalist, like a lo they used local um, photographers during that time. And they would carry out these operations all day, kids throwing stones, soldiers shooting at the kids, you know, often shooting just to maim, sometimes killing them. And so you'd sort of be on the street. Uh, in this conflict zone, a kid would get shot, you would, you know, help him to a taxi because the ambulances or help him get to the ambulance because the ambulance can't access the tight area. And this would just go on all day, this like logic of violence would happen all day. And then the sun would go down, and it would become the time for militants. So militants would come out after sunset, and they would shoot at the tanks that were holding these areas. They would chase them. Helicopters would fly with like spotlights trying to find people in the alleyways. And the militants would go on all night. You'd wake up in the morning the next day and the same thing would happen. And you'd go down into the main square in the city and the tank would come through and it would be like a war zone. And then the tank would drive away and everybody kind of just like, sits on the curb and talks. And then, you know, you hear the tank coming again, everybody jumps back into position and, and ready to go. But when you're sitting on the curb talking, people are telling stories about what happened the night before. Like While the Israelis were all around him, like on a hunter killer operation, they're hunting them. And then, so then that would be the night you'd come back. Yeah, they're looking for Zabedi everywhere. You know, they're trashing his house. They're, they killed his mom. They killed his brother. You know, like this is like real hunt, not like standing outside waiting for you to go to work. This is like killing your family, destroying your family's homes. But then they come in the morning, the sun would rise. You'd go down into the town or whatever. And Zachary Zabedi is sitting on the street corner. like moderating disputes, like essentially holding court, people coming up to him with anything, like, you know, whatever, any village dispute that's happening in the middle of this war, part of the responsibility of the resistance leadership is to kind of keep things flowing. You know, the first targets in Janine were the police stations. So when the Intifada began, a, a few Palestinians turned their guns on Israelis. There was joint patrols, and a guy in Janine turned his gun on the Israelis that he was supposed to be like co-defending with during the Oslo auspices. Anyways, the Israelis just destroyed all the police stations. So they immediately, the first thing they do, you know, isn't to attack, you know, the so-called militants. It's to attack what you'd think of as the logical, you know, balance to the fight, like have a police force that can, you know, anyways, the point is you destroy the police force and then you leave basics uh, settlement dispute. It's an attempt to create chaos, right? You know, I'm an abolitionist, but you can understand what the what a police force or, or a political leadership or a, a religious leadership in a town does. You know, the religious leadership is mediating disputes, maybe in a marriage and, the you know, in, in the street corner, there's the, a, a, you know, a spat between two families in the Janine camp. They were taking it to Zachary Zabedi on the street corner, sitting there, you know, and going up, 
you know, and, and, and essentially dealing with the destruction of everything around you in order to hold it together, it fell on the shoulders of these guys. Like, I don't know how old Zabedi was at the time. It couldn't have been more than 22 or 23. The top leadership in Islamic Jihad in, in the camp is 22, 23 years old. Like everybody else was killed. They, they assassinate, they imprison, they destroy the leadership. You know, never mind the literature. Like, are all the, like, you know, where are the Palestinian novelists? Where, like, they're in jail too. They're assassinated too. It's their families being killed too. But that's the toll of, of being in this struggle. But it's just when you're living there, you know, just how absurd it is. Like, how little, quote unquote, intelligence or like military intelligence that the Israelis have. They're in a lot of cases with Zabedi, like, he and you can see with Zabedi's history since since that time, like he he was compelled to fight by circumstance. You know, like as soon as there wasn't fighting, he was working in a theater. You know, the leader of the Islamic Jihad fighters in the camp in two thousand two, he worked at a record store. He was a twenty two year old record store worker, and then becomes like the most heroic fighter in one of the you know most heroic stories in Palestinian history. That's guerrilla war. These these guys are put in positions that they weren't, you know, that they didn't they didn't choose. Zubaydi didn't say like I am now the boss of the camp. He's a nice guy. He's not, you know, he's a good guy. And there was some chaos and some families fighting, like any other village in any place in the world. But it's in a pressure cooker, and so every, you know, you have to resolve these things because you can't have these distractions when people are, you know, under siege like that. So that's like a day for a fighter, you know, a day for a kid is the, the kid hears shooting all night is what maybe they're looking for his brother or his brother's, you know, his friend's brother. This is a small community. Everybody knows everybody. They know who's being hunted and they're wake, waking up every morning to see if their friend's brother died or if their own brother died. And then they're finding out that it's curfew. So school's canceled. So now you have a mother in a house with half a dozen kids, you know, aged five to 12, you know, good luck, good luck. The kids, one of the kids is going to sneak out the back door. Two of the kids are going to go to an underground school that's held in their neighborhood where a teacher's maybe holding classes for any of the kids that can walk safely in that area. Some of the kids are throwing stones. Some of the kids are hiding in their house because they're terrified and traumatized and trying to figure out how to live. And so you have these kids that can be seven, eight years old. Like you can find pictures on my website at johnelmer.ca and you just look at the kids that are participating. You know, they're young kids and the tanks would come through and, and occasionally they would be shot. Like they shot like hundreds and hundreds of kids during the Intifada, like intentionally shot hundreds and hundreds of kids. And so the tank would come through, the kids would throw stones at the tank, and the tank would disappear around town to go enforce something else. And the mothers, you know, the mothers were always way more angry than the Israelis. Mothers would come out and, you know, yell at the kids, get inside, uh, you know, grab them by the shirt collar and take them inside because they, they weren't supposed to, you know, we... We hear like, oh, they don't value life or something like this. It's like it's the exact opposite. It's the value of life that is having them struggle. And it's the fact that the mom has to come out and tell her kid, even though she wants that, but doesn't want it for her kid, you know, comes out and yells at them. The teachers will come out with like the rubber hose and be like, get into school if it was school was on. You know, so it's this like, it's this elaborate, you know play in a good sense, like, like interactions with the community and everybody's participating in it. And everybody doesn't want their kid to die. Everybody is, you know, pissed off that their kid is out there throwing stones because when they went to cook breakfast, the kid was sitting on the couch. The next thing you know, he's gone. And what is a mom supposed to do? Like, these are the kind of like, you'd interview the kids and the kids would say, you know, like, we're fighting back. And, you know, you interview the moms and the moms would say like, you know, I just wish it wasn't my kid. You know, like I, I wish it wasn't our kids. I wish it wasn't anyone's kids. You know, I wish that we weren't, we didn't have to do this. You know, Zabedi wasn't holding court because he wanted to be the boss of Janine. He was holding court because in the time of, you know, Matt wide, 
widespread assassination of all of the senior leadership, the destruction of the police station, the ruination of people's jobs, work, houses, streets, and that chaos fell to a, a like a martial law of sorts. Like, yeah, you um, mentioned not a law, like like a community law. Yeah. Right? Like, you mentioned in your article that during the Second Intifada, Israel carried out at least 273 assassinations, according to the Institute of Palestine Studies. So if you think that each one of those people represented a figurehead, a leader in the community, whether somebody working you know, in the civil service or lawyers, judges, writers, thinkers, scientists, whoever it may be, right, you're talking about the destruction of communities from you know, the top down. And capacity, right? It's you're you're destroying capacity, political capacity, social capacity, also military capacity, because you have these kids who are 22 years old in charge of the resistance. Like how strategic you can be when you're constantly turning over leadership like that. It's 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 a very difficult situation to operate in. The fact that the Palestinians, you know, really haven't ever broken down into internal discord is really remarkable. The ability for a society to withstand the pressure generation after generation and really not turn against each other and really not, you know, to really have the the national struggle at, at the forefront, right? Like so that Zubaydi is the person holding court, not some gangster, not some military person with no community constituency, you know, no base, not a police force with no, you know, using, you know, it was Zabedi using his family's history of resistance, his credibility within the camp, his status within the camp that he accrued through struggle. He accrued that status through fighting, through resisting, not because he wanted to be the king of Janine. Guys, that has been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Please follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Go ahead and check all of our sources at www.palestinepod.com and send us an email, some of you, at palestinepod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day. Michael cuts all the ums. Just yeah, that's good. Makes us sound smarter. (laughs) That's why. Yeah, that's the goal. It's gonna be an easy edit. I always say that. Oh, sorry. I thought you were done. (laughs) Please support the Palestine Pod on Patreon. Patreon Patreon.com/slash Palestine Pod. And I took your bio from your website. I hope that's okay. Yeah. I just added a couple sentences because I noticed the brief was not on there. Oh, yeah. I think I got my web department needs to get uh, <laughs> that updated. <Yes. laughs> There's so many platforms now. It's hard to know like where you yes. should put your attention, right? Like, Should you be constantly tweaking your website or like... Do people even use the internet outside of their social media anymore? I don't know. Maybe today they do with Facebook down. <laughs> right. Today only. Yeah, day. Everybody yeah. remember there are other websites today. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> what I went. I went to Twitter right away and I was like, now that you all are listening, free Palestine. <laughs> <laughs>